Brandon. Scar. Hey. You aren't Dan. No, I am not Dan. I could never be Dan. Dan is having a mental health day, but I need to sign some pages. And so Scar will be joining us for the next two episodes, which we're recording both today. And we will have Dan back shortly. Lucky people. And then you can talk about all the cool stuff like the podcast. The podcast brackets, yes. The brackets, the story ideas, and then, yes. We do have our winners, mm. but we're going to wait until Dan's back to do an in-depth discussion. But I can announce what has won, all right? So our winner, as a big upset for Food Heist, is Do Not Steal the King's Potatoes. Oh, that's such a good story. It is, and it was our 12th seed. And our winner on the bad story idea side is Titanic 2, Sink Harder. So we'll wait. Well timed, that one. Our timing maybe could have been a little more sensitive on talking about the Titanic, but it's all right. I had the idea many, many years ago. But we're going to wait for Dan to discuss in depth. But you and I are going to talk about being in the military. I have been in the military. Scar has been in the military. So for those who don't know who Scar is, Scar is from our little group of misfits in college that you might recognize Ben as being a member of, and Karen and Peter, and a whole host of us who all were running around together doing science fiction things. A lot of us in the English department getting, well, you know, doing science fiction things in the shadows at yes. BYU. Yes. Though you ran the convention, the BYU I did. one. I ran Life, the Universe, and Everything mm-hmm. one year. It was either 2000 or 2001. I can't remember which at this point. Yeah, somewhere around the same time that Dan and I were editors of the magazine, you were our counterpart running the sci-fi con, though you were also on the magazine. Yeah, I was doing little things, some mm-hmm. of the art direction and illustrations, and I, of course, helped with editing. Reading the submissions one of the 18 times we read them looking for typos. Yeah, and you also were an English major. I was. And ended up being one of us that went on to an actual job in English. I loved it. got a job. Well, I mean, that's strong. I got a job (laughs) right out of college as a technical writer, and that was my emphasis Mm -hmm. in the English department, technical writing. And yeah, it was okay. It was a paycheck. It was in a cubicle. And when 9-11 happened, I realized... Oh, thank heaven, I'm going to get to do something real. Which was unfortunate, probably not a good reaction to 9-11. You can cut that if you want. But <laughs> it was, yeah, I, the cubicle life did not agree with me. I much more enjoy the variation that I get nowadays and have had for the last 20 years. Yeah, I don't think your wife had the same reaction you did to <laughs> the deployments. The, no. you, went, you went on three deployments. Yep. And every time... You would be excited. I remember each of these times, you're like, ooh, I get to go do something, as you said, go to go the sandbox. Go challenge myself. Yep. Go see if I can make it through mm-hmm. the field of battle. Yep. And meanwhile, Christina was dreading it. It did get better, though. Yeah. The first two deployments, mm-hmm. A, they were back-to-back, which was rough mm-hmm. for all of us. But the phone situation, I could call about once a week. Mm-hmm when I was overseas the first time. And then that second one, every few days we were able to get access to the phones, but it made it actually, I think, worse for Christina because when you're on a regular schedule, getting a phone call from your husband every three days while he's in Iraq or Afghanistan 
when he doesn't call for a week and a half, you become very worried. And all that was happening on my end was we went out and did stuff for a week and a half, and I wasn't anywhere near a phone. So Right. I could see how that would be stressful. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't tell her, hey, we're leaving tomorrow right. because- Because national security. Operational security. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember on that second deployment, you telling me something, this was way back when, that normally when you do a deployment and come back, you've got a period before they'll deploy you again. But there was like one of these fun bureaucratic quirks that seemed to rule your life. Yeah. That (laughs) meant that uh, you went right back out. Yeah, I can tell that story. We were in Kuwait. We then invaded Iraq. And then we came back. And when we went to Kuwait, we went as a tiny little slice of our unit. Mm-hmm. And the invasion happened. They kept us there, you know, all hands on deck. And then we came back about two or three months after that invasion kicked off, spent some time in Baghdad working, but then came back and discovered that the much bigger unit of which our tiny unit in Kuwait and Iraq had been a part of was going as a whole to Afghanistan. And they came to me and said... We know you've already been gone for a year. That's great. We thank you. If you don't want to deploy with us, you're just going to have to find a new home. We can't do anything to help you stay here. You're just going to have to leave the unit. And I looked at my friends who I had just deployed with, the five guys that had been on the teams I was working with. They were all going. And so I went to Christina and said, look, all my friends are going to Afghanistan. The whole unit is going to Afghanistan. And they say there's nothing they can do to keep me back here and still in the unit and still supporting. So I think I want to go. What do you think? And being the supportive and wonderful and brave and strong wife that she is, she said, yeah, you can't let your friends go by themselves. Absolutely not. So off I went. Off back you went. Yep. I actually had to re-enlist while I was in Afghanistan because my time ended. Mm. (laughs) And I did it by proxy via sat phone while on an operation in the mountains. Were there like any fun interview questions? Like, I'm thinking of when I did my thesis defense at BYU as a published novelist. (laughs) And they're like, you know, what makes you think that you deserve this degree? I'm like, go to the bookstore. My book is on the shelf. I'm on the shelves. For the re-enlistment, they really didn't want me to go home. So I was basically had to call the guy and He had to hear my voice say, yes, it's okay for you to sign my name here. Okay. I just thought that might have some fun things for like, what makes you think you can cut it in the military? Uh, And you'd be like, "Uh, do you hear the gunfire? Well, I had a friend who was on the deployment before ours in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's another story I can tell about this afterwards too. Okay. But this friend of mine ended up having to call the Utah National Guard headquarters and try to correct the pay situation for his family because the Utah Guard headquarters was telling his wife that he was not deployed. <laughs> that they didn't know where he was, but he certainly wasn't on active duty currently, and he's on a hilltop on a sat phone doing that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It was actually about three months later into my second deployment there to Afghanistan that my wife went in to Utah National Guard headquarters and had some of the same questions. She was trying to follow up on my promotion because she was anxious to get, mm-hmm. I mean, good heavens. Yeah. That's a whole nother story. But she was in the office and they put her through what she referred to as the mad wife machine, which is, oh, 
We have a wife of a soldier here coming and yelling at the bureaucrats, go talk to the chaplain. And so she went and talked to the chaplain and he was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, let's go track this down. Took her to another admin guy who told her, uh, your husband is not deployed. We don't know where he is, but fortunately, while she was sitting in the office, jaw dropped. Mm -hmm. She saw behind the guy, good friend of mine. Yeah. I won't say his name just because. Yep. Walk by, but he had deployed me the first time. He had been the admin guy in our unit. Right. And she called out his name and told him briefly. And he looked at the guy behind the desk who was like, bro, did you look in XX place, blah, 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 et cetera. And the guy was like, oh, oh, very sorry. Your husband is deployed. Let's see if we can fix this. It was odd. The guard had not been to war in a long time. And this was the first two years after 9-11. You were in the National Guard. And then you did something very odd, as far as I know. You went full-time mm. in the National Guard. Like most people in the National Guard, they do their weekends and their month a year or whatever it is. And yes. yet you were active duty, full-time, but in the National Guard. Yep, for one year at a time for close to 11 years. Mm -hmm. So came back from those tours, spent some more time as a technical writer really understanding that I was not enjoying it or cut out for cubicle work. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you're opening up all kinds of cans of worms. That's the yeah. idea, right? That is. Let me tell people why I'm asking these questions though first. Please. You might be listening to me like, who is this random guy? Scar is on our team. In fact, if you have read the Stormlight books, this is Scar <laughs> himself that I wrote into Bridge 4. If you got the Stormlight poster, he's on the poster. Like, we actually gave him a model form and paid him to use his likeness on the Bridge 4 poster from the Kickstarter. I, and I sent you guys a picture from my first tour in Afghanistan, full beard yep, and everything. Yep. Just, we gave that to the artist and they put Scar on the team. And so Scar is now full-time here at Dragonsteel, having retired from the military earlier this year. So... You know, since Dan can't make it, and I know a lot of the people who listen are fans of the books or fans of Dragonsteel, we can talk about military. We can talk about, like, why I managed to get some measure of realism in my <laughs> books writing about military when I've never served in the military. And a lot of that comes down to Scar. So I thought you guys might be interested in chatting with Scar for a little bit. Glad to help. So the can of worms, what's the one I opened up? Oh, so what I ended up doing as a technical writer is the technical term is guard whoring, which is basically where you just start looking for orders from the National Guard because you don't like working civilian jobs and you just do them back to back to back to back. Right. Less so because they came to me mm -hmm. rather than me searching it out. But the short form of the story is my MOS, the Army trains people to conduct this MOS, do the job. MOS? Military Occupational Specialty. Okay. Sorry. Mm -hmm. They train people to do this MOS in a cubicle. And then a certain small percentage of people they've trained to do this in a cubicle, they kick them out the door and say, okay, you're now going to go support a Green Beret team or an infantry company as they patrol through the villages and mountains of wherever we're at war. Yep. And there is no bridging training of any kind. You got basic training, cubicle training, and then here's your backpack. Go support the infantry. In the Utah National Guard, we got a lot of people that have that MOS, and they started coming back saying, it took me a long time to get up to speed and be able to be useful to the Green Berets or the infantry guys that we were supporting, 
let's start a course that will teach people just the basics to help them not get killed and not get the guys around them killed and do their job well in that environment. And so we put together a two-week course. They came to me and I ended up on orders teaching that course 12 to 14 times a year. And initially it was just for the Utah Guard, but then after a while, 90% of our students were active duty soldiers because the active duty guys had the same problem and they heard about our course and eventually we became the center of excellence for that particular skill set, which was awesome. And then, yeah. From what I've heard from you telling stories at Writing Group, that a lot of your job involved probably wasn't a large percentage, but my perspective of it is the good stories. you kicking people out of airplanes and or dropping them in the middle of the wilderness and seeing if they can find their way home and then going yeah. and finding them when they get lost. <laughs> There's a lot of that. The particular job that we do, if you can't read a map and move along the ground accurately, you're useless. So a lot of training on land navigation at night under really heavy rucksacks, usually in a small team, being as quiet as you can. Yeah, that stuff. And yes, I'm a paratrooper. Very proud of it. I got my master parachutist badge a few years ago. Woohoo! And I don't know if you've ever kicked anyone out of a plane. Have you thrown people out of planes? Uh, gently shoved? I have shoved. I've never actually boot to back, mm. but... I have jump mastered guys who hesitated a little too long. I give them a little help. A little help out the yeah. door. Although mm -hmm. sometimes that's a really bad idea. We had one kid I remember who passed me a note that said, I am having a panic attack right now. Please help me. Mm -hmm. And the answer is not to kick that guy out of the right. plane. It's to take the parachute off and make him sit in the back of the plane till everybody's done, mm -hmm. which is a whole nother kind of bad for him. Yeah. Because... Then everybody part of the job description. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. So you don't always kick them out of the plane. Mm -hmm. Just the ones who deserve it. <laughs> Just the ones that deserve it. Yeah. So for years, you've kind of been my go-to guy when it comes to what does it actually feel like to do this? What does it actually feel like to be in combat? Because you've been in combat a couple of times. I have. Mm -hmm. Actually, Scar wrote his memoir talking about his tours, and it was only the first two at that point, wasn't it? Yeah, I wrote the memoir about the first two yeah. and realized that, well, I actually sent it to an agent, got approval and all that and so on, and they came back and said, this is very interesting because I know you personally. Yeah. In order for it to be interesting to a wider audience, you're going to have to give me these kinds of details. And those are the details I deliberately left out because of operational security. So yeah. I trunked it. It was really fun to read, but then in the end, I know you, so yeah, I can't say how marketable it was, but it was a really interesting read, and there's a lot of good stories in there, and one that sticks out, of course, is you kind of built to it as a climax, like the firefight you were in, the kind of the most intense one. Mm-hmm. Let's see. So, how to summarize that? We had discovered that this is first tour in Afghanistan— Humvees and the other vehicles that we use in the military typically make a lot of noise. And so as we would drive up to a village where through various means we had determined we thought there were bad guys hanging out, they would often just hear us coming five miles out mm -hmm. and just disappear into the hills for a while, wait till we were gone, you know, talking with the elders and looking around and then we'd leave and they'd come back down and mm -hmm. continue business. So in order to get around that, it's just not rocket science. It's not secret. It's just smart. The team commander that we were with 
had us drive up to about just out of earshot at like two in the morning, dead of night. Mm-hmm. And then we just stopped, killed our engines and half of our force walked the couple of miles around and got up in some positions of overwatch around the village we were interested in. Yeah. And then at first light, when dawn came, we drove into the village and sure enough, bad guys started squirting out of the village as soon as they could hear us. And the guys on the hilltops tried to stop them, were engaged and engaged back. And so we drove into the village and it was in full on firefight happening with the guys that were trying to escape. And then, oh no, they're dudes in the hills. And then they come back down and so on. And at one point, as we're driving in, we were taking small arms fire from an orchard. Mm-hmm. It was along the side of the road and we could see guys moving back in there. And, you know, we were taking pot shots at them, but it was chaotic visually. Mm-hmm. But there was one guy back there that you could occasionally catch a glimpse of who we were pretty sure had an RPG. We're like, we don't want that guy to shoot at us. And one of our Afghan counterparts in the truck in front of me mm-hmm. was what, you know, they're all seeing the same thing. And we see him kind of lean up against the back of the cab of the truck and brace himself as best he can. He's aiming at this guy through the orchard. And he shot his own RPG at their RPG guy through the trees of the orchard, direct hit at the dude's feet. Wow. He just disappeared in a blaze of parts and fire. And that was awesome. They did not shoot an RPG at us. That's awesome. It's all awesome. Anyway, we got into the village and stopped. And you're, I assume, going for this point of the story. Mm -hmm. We stopped and part of us linked up with some of the guys that had gone out on the perimeter and we were pushing through the bottom half and a dude off to my left popped up over a wall and started shooting at us. And I and everybody on our truck immediately just fired at him and knocked him backwards off the wall. Mm -hmm. Very dead, lots of hits. I've always been a pretty good shot. I'm pretty sure I hit him, but so did everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's the story, right? That's the story. And more it was like in the memoir talking about just like the feeling of it, right? Like what it feels like, which is as an author, I'm trying to Mm -hmm. replicate, right? And of course, your experience is only one experience and I'm trying to gather as many of these, but reading that kind of laser focus that you had and all of your training kicking in and all those things, that's what as a writer, I find just really interesting and useful. It was interesting. And one of the things that I noticed afterwards was you'd think, you know, we've been taking fire all over this village Mm -hmm. and we just killed a guy that had been trying to kill us, Mm -hmm. but you maintain awareness. You don't get tunnel vision. You know, you train out of all this stuff and the urge that you think you'll have is like, okay, we're stopped here for a minute. Everybody take cover, Mm -hmm. get down. And frankly, that felt like absolutely the wrong thing to do at the time for me. And I think everybody else, nobody was hunkering down anywhere. Hmm. We were up against the vehicle, but we had to stay where we could see what's going on because if somebody starts shooting at us, you need to be able to return fire. You can't just huddle there. There's stuff to do. So head up is what we tell people rather than head down a lot of times. Now, if rockets are inbound, you got to find cover. That's, that's the instinct. But when it's small arm stuff, there are lots of situations where ducking and covering is not the right thing to do because you'll just get trapped. Mm. Get pinned down and then... Yeah. Then they move around you and you can no longer hide and you don't have situational awareness anymore. One of the most interesting things about the memoir, and I know you enjoy talking about this, but also find it a little 
I don't know, interesting might be the wrong word, mm. the bureaucracy of the military <laughs> and how it works against its own interests, which has kind of taught me how bureaucracy, I mean, it's necessary, right? Mm -hmm. As Dragonsteel's grown, we need bureaucracy. If we don't have it, we will collapse. Yep. But at the same time, bureaucracy sometimes works against its own interests. My favorite story is the one I warned you I was going to ask about before the podcast. You remember that one? How we showed up in Afghanistan without yes. weapons assigned mm -hmm. to us? Yeah. So first tour in Afghanistan, we showed up. And there's a whole galaxy of history here between mm -hmm. Green Berets and their support elements and then the other support elements and you know who's the cool guy and who's not the cool guy and so on. And I'm going to put it out there. The Green Berets are the cool guys, period. We support them. Mm -hmm. But we arrived in Afghanistan and discovered that while they had brought our M4s, you know, our rifles, mm -hmm. they had not brought our pistols because we weren't cool enough to have pistols, even though they're on our list of things that are specifically assigned to us by regulation. They're just like, these guys support guys, they don't need their pistols. And they wouldn't give us the rifles. We're on Camp Vance in Afghanistan on September 11th, actually which is kind of one of those days you expect stuff to happen maybe. And they wouldn't release our rifles from the arms room because we hadn't done some paperwork that we were supposed to do to in-process the country. And you couldn't have pistols. And they didn't even have our pistols in country. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, you guys are supposed to have pistols? Let's send for them. And so they were shipped. But we were due, my guys, to get farmed out to Green Beret teams all over the country to do direct support. Yeah. And... We needed our pistols to go do that. And so the battalion commander discovered what was going on. You know, he's got guys going out the door and he's like, they're telling me they don't have pistols. What's going on? There were only six of us going out, getting farmed out. And so he took the pistols that had been assigned to his headquarters staff and reassigned them to us over the course of about a two hour period, issued them to us. And then we left, including his own pistol. Yeah. The way I remember the story is he like takes his own gun and gives yes. it to you. Yep. And he gave it to my team leader, mm -hmm. stellar individual, mm -hmm. who he made him promise, you got to take care of this pistol. It's done me really well. I've, I've tuned this thing. It's beautiful. I love it. I've cleaned it like a baby. And my team leader is just like, yes, sir. Absolutely. And, you know, he took mm -hmm. care of his pistol like he takes care of any pistol. Right. But yeah, I was always grateful for that battalion commander. Good dude. Yep, I've looked for a place to put that story in. <laughs> because once in a while, they're in scenes where Scar is in them. I'll use one of Scar's stories with permission from Scar. Say, hey, how would this play out? Is this what you would do? And so there's a really good one in Wind and Truth that I've been waiting for years <laughs> to find a spot for that Scar is told. So we're not going to tell that story. It's no, in Wind I and won't Truth. tell that story. When you get there and you see Scar... You'll know that this actually happened. This is an authentic SCAR training method. Something very close to it. Yep. Right here on Camp Williams, Utah. Mm-hmm. So this is a question I often ask SCAR, so you're going to have to repeat it for them. How did you keep from being bored? Right? Like, oh. I hear from soldiers all the time that just like... I know you would be on the gun sometimes driving around. And if you zone off, if you start writing a book in your head, which is what I would do yeah. every moment that I would be given the opportunity, then you aren't paying attention and you're on the gun. Like, how do you keep yourself 
the whole guard duty thing is fascinating to me. How do you keep yourself alert? So there's a couple of methods. Some of them are exterior. So for example, there's a perfect example. We're driving down a valley in Afghanistan and I kept getting little shots of adrenaline because somebody who knows how long ago could have been hundreds of years along the ridgelines had piled up stacks of rocks that looked kind of like a human outline. Mm. And so I'd be driving along. Well, I'm not driving. I'm on, yeah. I was on the turret for a lot of this scanning around and suddenly I'd be like, there's a dude up there. And so I'd glass him and then, you know, make sure I don't get focused too much on that mm -hmm. one guy. And then we'd get closer and closer. He's not moving. Oh, okay. That's another pile of rocks. And then 10 minutes later, there's a dude up there, a little shot of adrenaline and you're going back and forth. So the adrenaline, mm -hmm. when you get little, little triggers like it. that, little jolts keeps you awake. And if you're paying attention, our pattern finding brains, they find human figures a lot of places where they're not actually. Helps uh -huh. you pick them out when they are actually there. But then another one is just straight up mechanical. You can actually zone out mentally, uh -huh. like writing a story or listening yeah. to music or thinking about, you know, random guy thoughts. And as long as you're mechanically doing your, everybody calls it fives and 25s, but then typically you're looking for IEDs that way when you're jumping out. But I always thought of it as near and far. Mm -hmm. You've got your sector that you're responsible for keeping watch on. And when you're on a gun in a convoy, if you're in the front vehicle, it's the front, mm -hmm. you know, 180. And then the guy behind you's got the left and the guy behind him's got the right and back and forth and so on. And so you're just, you're looking at the things that could be hiding dudes in up close. And then you're looking at the guys that far. And so on the far one, that's when I would find the piles of rocks up on the ridge lines. And yeah, you can be pretty zoned out. And as long as you're mechanically doing the scan, things will pop out at you. Really? The jolt yeah. will hit? Yep. Music is a big one. Music helps or hurts? Helps. Really? Yep. I found that it occupies part of my brain uh -huh. and the other part I can direct where I will, mm -hmm. which is doing your near and far scan. Yeah. When I was in Kuwait and then during the invasion of Iraq, I had a little MP3 player that I had loaded up with some songs. Not that many. I mean, mm -hmm. this is way back when the memory was kind of small, but I had, I can talk about the group, right? Mm -hmm. Just kind of a techno ethereal group called 14 Strings. Okay. Which I really enjoyed. I think I'm remembering the name correctly. But to this day, if one of those songs that I was listening to over and over and over again in Kuwait and Iraq pops up, I'll just be transported back, especially mm -hmm. if it comes up without me planning on it, you know, just pops up on the playlist. It's like, oh, wow. I remember the, the heat and the stench and just the long vistas. Music is powerful that way. And it, yeah, like I said, it occupies part of the brain and then the other part you can direct where you will. Whereas if you leave it completely on its own, if you're just trying to do it in dead silence, it, your daydreaming can occupy too much of the brain, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Like that would be my big challenge, right? Like there are many jobs that I would be bad at, <laughs> right? It's a very good thing that I found my way to this job because I often say, I mean, I, w I would be a terrible employee for most types of jobs. 
Because if you give me even 30 seconds, I'm off working on a story, right? You know, if I haven't written my words for the day, this happened back when I wasn't a full-time writer, Mm -hmm. it would be hard for me to focus on anything else. I'm curious, was Mm -hmm. that urge to get out there and write stories a given 30 seconds or imagine stories Mm -hmm. given that 30 seconds, did you train yourself into that? Or was that from when you were a kid? So it's definitely a natural inclination that I have enhanced over time. I wrote the Alcatraz books about how our greatest superpowers are often our weaknesses, right? Like it's done sillily in those books, like Mm -hmm. Grandpa Smedry, who's always late to things, weaponizes being late and makes it a superpower. That's kind of the joke of the Alcatraz books. But when I would, kids would ask me, like, what's your Smedry talent? I'm like, it's daydreaming. Right. Like (laughs) if I got into problems or whatnot, it's usually because I wasn't focusing on the thing I'm supposed to be focused on. And even all the way I've told this story before through high school and college, as soon as I discovered storytelling, as soon as I started reading and I discovered books and I started writing, everything turned into storytelling. All of my papers turned into stories where the teachers didn't know what to do with me. If you assign me a research paper, it's going to come back in narrative form. And whatever you assign me, I would turn into some sort of narrative exercise. Nice. Which often got me poor grades. Well. Because I was not fulfilling the assignment. Once in a while, a teacher would be like, this is amazing. I asked for a research paper and it was fun to read. But a lot of times I just wouldn't fulfill the assignment. I wouldn't you know, the check the boxes, the boxes on the rubric, right, which is important to learn. But I really trained myself into this. And the best jobs for me would be ones where it doesn't matter if your mind isn't there. I've always said, like, being a programmer would be the worst job for me, Mm. because it's too similar to writing. If I do it, it sucks the energy from wanting to write. This is why I don't role play anymore. And there goes the joy. Yes, there goes the joy. But doing manual labor actually it's really great for being a writer. I've, you know, talked about that in books before and on the podcast, but I yeah, think- there's a scene with Dalinar in yeah. Way of Kings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that being in the military would be one of those ones that would be really hard for me because I think of the story Harrison Bergeron. Mm. I don't know if you've read that, but in Harrison Bergeron, it's a great story. Kurt Vonnegut, it's a classic. And he postulates a world where to try to make everyone equal, anyone who's exceptional- has to have some sort of device to bring them down to average level. And if you are too intelligent in that, they put a bell in your ear that will ring every few seconds to keep you from maintaining coherent thoughts. And I think of a lot of jobs that would be that for me. I'd have just enough time to start thinking about it, and then the bell would bring me back. And I feel like being in the military would be a mix of, obviously, if I was an infantryman, you know, there's a lot of specialties I think in the military I'd be fine at, right? Sure. You probably stick me on an Air Force base and tell me, you know, learn how to fix this machine. And I'd probably be just fine at that. But being out, being in the infantry, being on patrol, being on watch, all of this stuff I think would probably be a pretty terrible job for Brandon. Yeah. And th- I mean, don't get me wrong. There's mm-hmm. plenty of hurry up and wait where it yeah. doesn't matter if you're paying attention because mm. somebody forgot you existed and you're just trying to find a spot of shade until you can yeah. eat in four hours. Right. Then it'd be fine. Right. Except for the fact that you're probably, you know, hurry up and wait. You're probably out where it's hot. 
or cold or not in a good temperature. You probably don't have easy access to, you know, you'd have like a little notebook maybe that's probably going to get destroyed. I was just going to mention yeah. the extent of what I could do yeah. when it came to stories was yeah. write down ideas in a little notebook that I kept yeah. in my pocket. Like a little so pocket, like hit it. writing it, that would handle a chapter, right? And they're not going to let me bring a case of those, right? <laughs> no. And so it's like, what do I do? Did you have like phones? Could you like type on your like cell phone? The later deployments, yes. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they totally allowed you to have whatever personal devices you wanted. Right. And being in special operations, that's maybe totally different. I'm sure mm-hmm. there are infantry guys that could just be like, absolutely not. They tossed yeah. my gear and took away all those things. But yeah. you were allowed. But I just feel like if you're too tired, a lot of times it's hard to write. We may talk about this on our next podcast because you've written while doing a lot of this stuff. If your brain isn't all there, it's very hard to construct stories. And I feel like I would have a lot of the issues. I remember you talking about this, Dan talking about this sometimes, like, yes, there's time, but the brain isn't there. And I remember you talking about how you wished one of the things you went to like a school for a while. And you're like, I think I'm going to get a lot of writing done. And you came back and you're like, I didn't get any writing done. Oh yeah, My brain was exhausted after every day of training and there's no way to get any writing done during that time. So yeah, the creative act takes energy. Mm, I'm glad we have scars in the world because then Brandon's don't have to sit in Afghanistan and try to write in a little notebook in between, you know, various activities that don't involve room service. <laughs> You're welcome. How's that, Ben? Or Dan, if you happen to be watching. <laughs>